I just want to remind you that April 15th is just around the corner, by the way. April 15th, any, any, does it ring a bell for anybody? Any, any accountants in the house? Tax day, right? Tax day. And, and it's uh, something that, that, that I'm showing, I wanted to show you that video. Those of you who are following us online, you didn't get to see the video. It, and let me just give you a real quick uh, brief. It's just an exp- uh, a demonstration and it's from uh, the film The Star of Bethlehem or, or The Nativity Story. I'm sorry, The Nativity Story. Um, and it's the, a, a scene where the tax collectors come to, to Nazareth and they start, you know, collecting the tax, the imperial tax. Um, and I wanted to show you that particular video to see how unpleasant that experience was. As it is, nobody likes the tax man, nobody likes the IRS, nobody likes to go and pay their taxes. It's, it's just something that none of us like to do. And, and, and Ben Franklin had to tell us that there's two things for certain in this life, death and taxes. And we, we want to avoid that because we don't like to give to the government what we work hard for. We have a hard time giving it to God. You know, that, that's for another sermon. I'm not going to preach on that today. Um, but then give it to the government for whatever reason. Taxes were something that has been there for a while, and the Romans used to do it, but they were very brutal about it. As you can see, if somebody had a debt, they would confiscate possession. They would confiscate your, um, your, your animals. They would confiscate your land. And some, in some cases, your children to pay off the debt, to have the children and your family work and pay off that debt. So needless to say, then th- these tax people, these tax collectors were not the most popular individuals in society. As a matter of fact, they were seen as horrible people. They were seen as brutal traitors, people who were turncoats, who had betrayed the Jews and were working for the Romans. Because these people were actually Jewish, Jewish people that were conscripted or they were um, actually recruited from the populace by the Roman oppressors to collect this tax. So they were not popular people. I'm not here to change or, or, or move away from our, our series that Pastor Oscar has been sharing with you on, on 40, right? This, this time of transformation. Because I want to talk to you about an individual who was transformed, who was in a very, he comes from one horrible state, it comes to a glorious state. It's this absolute transformation that happens. And um, I'm going to read to you out of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to talk about this person who was a wee little man. Some of you probably know the song. He, he, um, he was not very tall. He was vertically challenged. But he was a tax collector. Not like, not only was he a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. And this is what Luke tells us about this individual. Luke chapter 19, verse 1, reads this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, 
But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And this is the word of the Lord. Spirit of the living God, I pray that today, Lord Jesus, you move in this place. I pray that I decrease and you increase in this house. I pray that it is the power of your Holy Spirit that touches the heart of your people, Father, and not just my mere understanding of this or my mere regurgitation of facts, Father God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that it is your power that breaks chains, that transforms, that gives hopes, that gives us an understanding of your mercy, of your grace, your ability to change us and transform us, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how far we walked away from you. There's still time in your mercy, in your holy name I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. So Zacchaeus, he was not only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. This is what tells us. He was a chief tax collector. What does that mean? He was kind of like the boss man. He was like a, like a manager of tax collectors. And tax collectors were, I already stated some of the reasons why they were disliked so much by society. They were social pariahs in the social hierarchy in first century Palestine. One, because they took their money. Two, because there were Jews who represented the oppressing Romans, the occupying Romans. Nobody wanted, they, they saw them, you know, like these people are traitors. They're betraying their own people and they're basically serving the enemy. Not only that, they also abused their power. They were known for abusing their power. They were in a position that was a great deal of corruption. You know what they say, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So they were in a position where they were taking advantage of their authority and the protection from the military, from the Roman Empire. So nobody could do anything about it. All they could do was just hate him. But, but here we have Zacchaeus who was who was a, a, a chief tax collector. And it tells us, that, that I love what, the, what Luke gives us here. Luke, by the way, who was, he was a physician by training. But if, if you study Luke in detail, Luke was a bona fide historian. His research that he did to write Luke and Acts 
was compared to any of the contemporary historians of the time, uh, Philo and, and, and Josephus, Flavius Josephus, it's that detailed. He interviewed a lot of eyewitnesses to, to, to write this, this, these facts that he brings to us. So he tells us that he was a chief tax collector, and not only that, in a, in a very quick way, he tells us he was wealthy in a society that was extremely impoverished. He was wealthy. How did he get that money? I just described it to you. Abuse of power, extortion, um, you name it. Didn't make him popular. People didn't like him, but who cares? I have money. I got everything. I got power. I got fame. I got all of those things. He was well known there in his, in his uh, town and there in Jericho. And you can see the, the, the animosity of society towards tax collectors if you, if you pay attention in Scripture because they mention tax collectors a lot. In, in, in other translations, they call them publicans, right? Publicans, tax collectors, these are, they were hated. And, and we see it in a lot of places. Here, here we see Jesus using the local knowledge and the local culture and understanding to prove a point. When he's talking to people about, um, you know, how to approach somebody who is in sin, right? You know, we, here, here in, 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 in our community, we, when somebody does something wrong, what we do to address the issue, we go talk to our friends and talk behind the back of that person. Okay, they got quiet on me, Lord. Still going to keep preaching. You know, we usually go behind their back and start talking about them, start making cheesemas and all that good stuff. But what the Bible tells us to do is, it, 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 is this. This is how he tells us. This is how Jesus tells us to address these things. Matthew chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. In private, right? Go confront them. You don't have to be hostile. Go confront them. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, then take one or two other along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, then, I then tell it to the church that if they refuse to listen, and if they refuse to listen to the church, listen. See, we've already gone through the process, right? We talk to them one-on-one. -on -one, they don't want to change. They, won't, they don't want to budge. Bring a couple of witnesses. Confront them again. If they still don't want to budge, bring it before the church so that you have a consensus from the church. And then if they still don't want to listen, listen to what Jesus says. If they still refuse to listen, this says, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Do you see what he says? If they still, if you've gone through that whole process and they still don't listen to you, then you should treat them the way you treat tax collectors. That tells you where they're at in the pecking order. They're not on the totem pole. They're like the dirt underneath the totem pole, right? So that's, that's the view of society. Have a Pagans and tax collectors. Pagans, people who have no relationship, have no covenant with God. 
See, the view, the Jewish world was either you're Jewish or you're a Gentile. Another word for a pagan, right? And these people, you don't want to hang out with them. So they saw tax collectors, they would bunch them up with them. And Samaritans, that's another group that they didn't like. It's interesting how we in society uh, go into this interesting thing of tribalism. And it's very easy to start becoming a tribe and, and, oh, you know, you talk the way I do and you act the way I do and drive more or less what I do and dress the way I do. And, and we start turning into a little social club. And anybody that's outside of the club is like us versus them versus them. And, and that creates all kinds of problems. Listen, Matthew chapter 5 tells us another example of um, how people viewed Again, tax collectors. Jesus in, in, in his Sermon on the Mount is telling people the expectations of heaven. And he tells them, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Do you see what he just said? In other words, if, if, if you're just loving people who love you back, if you're in your little circle, in your little social club, then, hey, tax collectors do that too, by the way. Because, okay, everybody hated tax collectors, so what did, who did tax collectors have? And by the way, the Romans didn't like them either because they were Jews. They were not Romans. They were like second class. They were kind of like in between. So nobody really liked them. So what do they, they have their own little community. So tax collectors had other tax collectors. So he says, that doesn't make you any better than them. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you see all these references that Jesus himself is making to the cultural hierarchy and the cultural beliefs and those, those, those sore spots, if you will, of people that they intensely disliked. This is Zacchaeus. He's not only that, he's the boss of them. He's the one that organizes them. Think of a pyramid skid, right? You have so many people under you and then this pyramid goes. It, he was amassing a great deal of wealth because he was getting his cut from everybody else that he was managing. But how many of you know that Jesus hates the sin? He doesn't hate the sinner. And... There are some individuals who sometimes, I've talked to so many people that, that, that say, you know, well, no, I, I can't go to your church because, God, if you only knew, if you only knew about me and what I did and what I've done and, and, and I don't think God's going to forgive me and I, because I've done this and I've done that. I thought if you would hear my story, you, you'd be okay. I don't want to go to your church because it's going to catch on fire. I'm like, bro, if it didn't catch on fire with me, we're good. Besides, we have insurance. Right? So, it's, it's, it's this idea that, that there's some people that are beyond salvation because of their sin, their attitude, what they've done, what they do. And, and we somehow feel that we're better than them. For whatever reason. And, and, and Jesus is going completely against the grain. Because even the Pharisees had their own little clique. The Sadducees had their own little clique. 
You know, you have to act a certain way and dress a certain way and, and worship a certain way and have a certain set of beliefs, then you can be part of my club. You can be part of my clique. So you, you have these groups there. Jesus is breaking all the rules because he's getting people from all of these different groups, even from, from factions that are literally at war with each other. He gets a guy by name of Simon the Zealot. You ever heard of that? The Zealot. What's a Zealot? I'm glad you asked. A Zealot was a political party. And these were like kind of like the underground, the ones that were, wanted to overthrow the Romans. And they were doing everything they could to overthrow them. And they were uh, practicing, you know, assassinations. They were practicing things like sabotage. They were doing all kinds of things to overthrow and corrupt and, and make the, the, the Roman government fall by military or strategy. Now, those were the zealots. But then Jesus goes and does this. Listen to, listen to, listen to this. This is why, what I love about Jesus. Because he goes against all those little rules that we make. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. This is Mark 2. A large crowd came to him, and he began teaching to them. As he walked along, he saw... Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, he asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you see how this echoes with the very same thing he answered with Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Levi... That was his Hebrew name. You probably know him by his Greek name. Matthew. Matthew. Levi, Matthew, Levi. It's the same guy. What did he do for a living? Which we have a gospel of Matthew. Right? The first gospel that you see when you get to the New Testament. The gospel of who? Matthew. Who was by, by trade a tax collector. He had a zealot and a tax collector in his midst. Completely opposite points of view. Completely opposite political alliances. Completely opposite ways of thinking. And Jesus brought these two people together. He goes to him, to this man, and tells him, follow me. He doesn't tell him, stop being a tax collector. Once you show me a certificate of not being a tax collector anymore, then you can join the club. No. He goes up to him at the tax collection booth. He says, follow me. See what Jesus is doing? He's reaching a hand across all of these lines, these social lines, and bringing in this man that was seen as a social reject and making him part of one of the disciples. And thanks to him, we have a, a tremendously detailed synoptic gospel, the gospel of Matthew. This is Jesus for us. So what does that tell us? 
Nobody is too far gone. Nobody is too far gone for his grace to reach you, to reach me, to reach all of us. I don't care what you did, and I don't know what brought you here or how you came here. Maybe you were brought kicking and screaming. I'm glad you're here because you probably needed to hear this. I don't care what you've done. I mean that. I don't care what your past looks like, how many times you've done it, how shameful it was, what it happened. Let me tell you, you can still repent and God can still reach you and use you. Amen. Glory to God. Something happened. Something has to happen. Because there was a change that started, there was a change that started brewing within Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was powerful. Zacchaeus had money. He was wealthy. He had respect. He had fear, hate, but he had possessions. He lived like nobody else did. And he was protected by the Roman Empire. Nobody could mess with him. Nobody. Yet he had all those possessions. He had all of those things at his disposition, at his beck and call. But something was missing. How many of you know that we could be rich? We could have a big house. We could have a big bank account here and in Switzerland and wherever you want to have it. And, and, and we can have the nicest car and we can have all of those things. But none of those things are going to fill you long term. They might fill you for a little bit, but not for long. Some time ago, I, went, I was looking for a watch. Because my other one that I had, you know, I killed it. So, yeah, it died on me. So, I was looking for a watch. I'm looking for something utilitarian. Something that I can beat around and it still be good, right? So, I bought this one. It's not a very expensive watch. It really isn't. I bought it at TJ Maxx. So, you know, I'm not, they're not, they're not uh, sponsoring me or anything like that. But I bought it there because it was cheap. But you know what? If you take this watch and you compare it to the nicest Rolex out there, they can tell you at the same time. Maybe one's a little bit more precise, but they can still tell me at the same time. They still tell me I have five minutes to get to this place and you're running late. Right? You could buy the nicest bed out there. You know, now you have those beds that bend and, you know, temperature control and all of that stuff. But your anxiety still won't let you sleep. The stress won't let you be able to, to rest. You might have the big house, but you might not have a home. See, we can look at those material possessions but those things are never going to fulfill us. Nothing in this earth ever will. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that the earth and everything in it will pass. But my word will not pass. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know, I don't know who I'm talking to today. But I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're like, oh man, life is great. I got everything. But it's not enough. To have the world 
and there's not enough. The Romans had a term for that called orbis non satis. The world is not enough. It's also a James Bond movie, by the way. But orbis non satis. The world is not enough. I'm going to read this quote that um, I heard from Pastor Oscar originally, but uh, then I read, I read the book, and I'm like, oh, I came across it. And it's, it's, it's tremendous. It's by one of the brightest minds, in my opinion, of the 20th century. And it reads this. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. If a baby, a, few, a baby feels hunger, well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such thing as water. Man feels sexual desire, well, then there is such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was not, I was not made, I was not, I was made for another world. I jacked that up completely. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pressures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. There's something greater. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote these words in his book, Mere Christianity, which is a seminal work. If you're interested in Christian apologetics, if you're interested in understanding the philosophy before, behind the, the, the tenets and the foundation of the Christian faith, that's a, that's a must read. You might have heard of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Those were the children's books. You know, if you read The Problem of Pain, The Four Loves, there's, there's so many of those screw tape letters. They're excellent, excellent sources for intellectual fodder, for you to understand why we believe what we believe. And he's talking about here, yes, there's going to be everything in this world, nothing satisfied fully. And I've told you about those philosophers, those theologians from, those theologians from England that said, I can't get no satisfaction. Mm, come on, some of you remember the song, <laughs> you know. And they're talking about this no matter what you do. I mean, Solomon wrote about this in Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless. Of course, he saves the best piece till the last chapter in chapter 12. He says just God is that missing piece. It was Blaise Pascal, a very famous mathematician and philosopher who who. Wrote, he was a devout Christian, and he talked about the God-shaped hole in man's heart. No matter what you stuff your heart with as far as possessions and earthly things, created things, they're going to leach out. Because you have this God-shaped hole that only will be plugged by God himself. Zacchaeus was rich. He was wealthy. He, was, he had everything you and I would desire to have in a lifetime. But something was missing. Why do I say that? What am I basing myself on? I don't like to just jump and, and make assumptions. I like to base myself fully on what is written in the Word. Because he wanted to see Jesus. How many of you have heard some, like, singer or some whatever that wants to show up here at LEA back when they would show up here and they would, they would sing and you're like, couldn't care less. I don't know who this person is. 
why wouldn't you care less? Because this person has nothing to offer to you. Has nothing that is of interest to you. Maybe to your teenage kid, you know, they're like, oh, I have to go or I'm going to die, right? But for you, it's like inconsequential. You know, I can go get a root canal. I mean, I don't know. I don't care. Right? Because it means nothing to you. But here we have Zacchaeus who had all of that and he wanted to see Jesus. He found out Jesus was coming. There was something there. Jesus has something that I don't have. He has something that I might need. He had heard. Jesus had been around ministering for three years already. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to this triumphal entry. And he's passing through Jericho. And there's this desire. I, I want to see Jesus. To the point that this man who was so dignified and powerful and protected, he climbs the tree. How many of you would climb a tree to do to see what's going on? Unless it's that important to you. Remember, he was, he was short in stature. So he was like, we can't see Jesus, you know. He, he couldn't see him. So he goes and he climbs the tree. Tells you how important this was for him. How many of you would go do something crazy for something that's really important to you? Would really go out of your way? Would do something that's unbecoming of you to get there? So his behavior, as a psychologist I can tell you, his behavior is indicating that there was a great deal of interest in him seeing Jesus. He has something. He has something I don't have. He has something I can't buy. He goes up there and he starts getting up there and starts looking for, he gets up on that tree See, Zacchaeus, like many of the people in Scripture that Jesus comes across, the woman at the well, all of these people, they had a deep need in their heart that only Jesus, the person of Jesus, could satisfy. And what happens? Jesus offers them what they need. They had the Pharisees. They had the Sadducees. They had the law of Moses. They had all of those things. But what did the Pharisees offer? Rules. Chastisement. Guilt. Shame. They offered rules. Jesus offered relationship. They offered rejection. Jesus offered redemption. So it was an easy choice. I mean, if I go to the Pharisees, the Pharisees don't even want to talk. They don't even want to associate with me because I'm a tax collector. See, Jesus tells the, in, in John chapter 5, Jesus is, is having this back and forth with the, the, with the Pharisees. People who are religious to the extreme. People who are very, very pious, very, very religious, very, very sanctimonious. And they found their religiosity to be the, the, everything that defined them. It was their religiosity. Following the rules, you know, do this, don't do this. Following those 613 commandments, that's what make them feel, yeah, I'm like this with God. I heard Pastor Oscar say that once religion is the, the, the most comfortable way of going to hell. 
Because you think, we think that we're like this with God because we're just, we, turn, we turn scripture into a recipe book, right? This, 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 this. It is not about that. It's about relationship. It's about the person of Christ. It's about mercy. It's about love. Listen. So he's struck talking to these people and he tells them to listen to what Jesus says, which is, I love this passage. John 5.39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You see what he just said? You pour over the scriptures. If you look at the, at the, at the Greek, it's like you pour over the scriptures because you're thinking that you're going to find life in there. Listen. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Yes, you're studying the scriptures. Yes, you're absorbing the scriptures. Yes, you can recite the Bible verse and, and chapter and everything. You can, you can mem you memorize it. But you lost a big, you, you're missing a biggest point. What are the scriptures talking about? What are the scriptures referring to? They're referring to me. The scriptures are not going to give you life. It's me that's going to give you life. You will not find eternity there in the law. You will find it in my person, in a relationship with me. Yet you refuse to listen to me. How many of you were here, I said, last Wednesday? When we we're talking about revival. Why not here? Right? Why not here? We're talking about transformation. We're going through those 40 days of fasting and praying and reading scripture and doing all of that. Why are we doing that? Let me just remind you. So that we can have an impact in this community. So that the church can start growing. So we can have revival. So we can reach, reach those people that are hurting like this. So we don't just present the same old stale religious stuff that people have been trying to shove down their throats forever. We want to show them a loving Christ. We want to show them a relationship and a God who loves them. That's why we're talking about transformation. Listen, we find that life in Christ only in his person, only in a relationship with him. Jesus says a lot of things, a lot of harsh things. You know, we, we, we just, we, we um, practice, we, we celebrated the, the Lord's Supper this morning. And he takes the bread, right? He says, this is my body that is for you. He takes the, 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 the cup, he says, this is my blood. Talking about that, that communion. Talking about the new, the new covenants that he's making. Before people saw it and his disciples saw what he, was, what he was doing, he had, before he had says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want anything to do with me. Now, people took it out of the spiritual context and they took it in a, in a physical context. And this guy's crazy. He's talking about cannibalism. We don't eat pork. We can't have a cheeseburger. And he's talking about cannibalism. Doesn't make sense. So people started leaving him. People started leaving him. And Jesus tells them, do you not want, 
do you not want to leave me too? Do you? You want, you, I can't read today. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the only one of God. This is the disciples. He's telling them, you want to leave? Are you guys going to leave me too? They're like, where do we go? Where do we go? See, when people walk away from their faith in Christ, you know, it's, I guess the greatest tragedy besides the eternal consequences is what do they turn to? What, what, what on earth do they turn to? Naturalism? The universe having blind forces suddenly creating humanity? Cosmic accident? Matter plus space plus time plus chance? What on earth do we hold on to when we walk away from it? This is exactly the question. He said, like, who do we go to? You, only you have the words of God, you, words of eternal life. So this is the same thing. You know, they're, they're, they understand there's something that Jesus has that Zacchaeus doesn't have. Eternity. Eternity. That shook this man. And man start questioning everything. Why do I have this? Why, what am I doing with this? There's, there's something greater. There's something bigger. There has to be something more. I don't know how many of you have ever been in that situation. Where you're in the rat race of life. Doing all the things that we have to do to be successful and be prosperous. And have money and have a career and have investments. Have retirement and do this and do that. And that rat race over and over. How many of you ever stopped and thought like, is this it? There has to be something more to life than this. Or am I the only one who's been there? If, you get to the, if you've ever gotten to that existential crisis, you know what I'm talking about. It feels so empty. It feels so useless. It feels so meaningless. Jesus says, when he says, you know, eat my flesh, eat my flesh. Let me give you context. And some of you have heard me say this. Remember John chapter 1. It's in the book of John where he says this. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. See, when you eat something, that becomes part of you. Right? So that's why you have to have your macros. You know, you have to have your... your your proteins, your carbs, your, you know, your, your, your fats, right? And, and depending on what you're eating, that's what you're going to get. They say that you are what you eat, right? So I'm like, probably right now I am machacado uh, la mexicana. Because what happens, you take that and it goes into your digestive tract and then your liver picks up all of the nutrients and vitamins and breaks it down and turns it into amino acids and, and fats and vitamins. And, and, it goes, and it just gets rearranged around the body for it to create more of the tissue of wherever you need. You literally become, it literally becomes part of you. 
But this is digestion. I'm talking, now let me talk about spiritual digestion. What happens when we're eating and feeding ourselves the word of God? It becomes part of us. It becomes part of us. That's why he says, if you want to be part of me, you must, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's talking about understanding his word. What are we doing? We're fasting. We're praying. We're reading the word. Amen? Jesus has something to offer that goes beyond all of those things that are not satisfied. And finally, let me talk to you about transformation. Listen. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. You see, he, he got more than he bargained for. More than he even thought. He just wanted to see him. He wanted to at least behold him because there was a desire in his heart. But Jesus knew there was some deeper things in there that needed to be explored. All the people saw him and began to mutter, he has gone to the guests of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Several things are happening right here. How many of you have ever been crying out to God? And hoping that God hears you and understands your problem and your situation. And you want to sit down and tell God, because God, you don't understand. This is what's going on in my life. This is what's happening. God, I don't hear you. God, you don't, you're not responding. All I'm hearing is static. How many of you have ever been there? Let me ask you. How many of you know that God is omniscient? Omniscient. What does it mean? He knows all things. Talk about an exercise in futility. You're trying to explain to God what's going on in your life. Because he knows it better than you do. He understands it better than you do. He knows you have a need before you even register that you have a need. Yes? Every hair on your head is numbers. He knows everything about you. So he comes up to this guy, he's walking, he's standing on the tree looking very silly, and he looks up, and he calls him out by name. They have never been introduced. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I want to stay in your house tonight. Zacchaeus had a desire for Christ, had a need for Christ. Christ already had made he had already booked him as an itinerary, an itinerary without him even knowing. And he comes and stays at his house and gets the ire of society. How is he going and, and, and hanging out with this person? He's a sinner. He's a, he's, a, he's a tax collector. But there's a transformation that happens. Does Jesus come and start like, you know, just Bible thumping him and beating him over the head with the Bible? No, just shows up, sits at the table, breaks bread with this man in the condition that he was. And what happened? Everything started changing in his heart. And he says, here and now, 
Not then and there. Here and now. I'm going to give half of my estate to the poor. And, I'm, and if I ever cheated somebody, which you probably had cheated a lot of people, I'm going to give them back four times what I took away from them. How's that for repentance? See, sometimes we hold for, to, to things, for created things, for dear life. But those things are not going to give us life. It is the blesser, it is the creator, not the created thing that's going to give us life. So he realized this is a stupid trait. Let me just get rid of the stuff I don't need anymore because I am changed. I am a different person. The old is gone. The new is here. I'm going to get rid of the stuff that gets in my way. And I'm going to grab on to what's really important. I'm going to let go of these things that I valued at one point. That gave me value. That gave me meaning at one point. But now they're pointless. Now I have this. And what does Jesus say? Salvation has come to this house. Because how many, how many Pharisees were doing that? They weren't. They were grabbing on to their pride. They were grabbing, grabbing on to their status. They were grabbing on to the respect they had from society. God forgave them. So what do we have to do? What is, that's the hope for you and for me. There has to be a transformation. Listen, if... If we want to create revival, it needs to start, guess with who? It's always easy to point a finger at someone else or a certain group or at that person or that. And it, it's become a philosophical, uh, uh, I, I guess, mantra right now that let's blame this, let's blame that. It's those people over there, that people. No, it's me. I need to change. I need to repent. I need to be transformed. So we see that transformation. There's a beautiful passage. And this is what gets us Christians in trouble. People don't like it when we, when we say that, oh, we're, we're going to heaven. How many of you know that? We're, we're going to heaven. People don't like that when Christians say, oh, I know I have heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. People ask so arrogant of you. How do you know you're going to heaven? And now I'm not going to heaven. Well, because the Bible is very clear about that. I didn't make that up. And it's not because I'm special, more special than anybody. This is where we make the mistake. We think that we're special. We're not, not I earned nothing. I deserve nothing. I am unworthy of that. It is his worthiness. It is his righteousness. Yes? And this is what he offers us. See, there's two people, and he gives, he gives a parable, and I love this parable. He talk, talks about this self-righteousness between self-righteousness and repentance. Two guys show up, and, and Jesus talks about this. Look, it's in, in Luke chapter 18, it's the previous chapter. He talks about this. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. 
basically saying, God, you outdid yourself and you created me. Man, you know, I am just that awesome. I'm all that in a bag of chips. Thank you for making me so amazing. That's what he's saying, basically. Thank you for not making me like that person over there. How's that for pride? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. Which is very rare for men to do that in, in, in Eastern countries. Women do that. It was in deep distress. Deep distress for him to do this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We know of Zacchaeus. We know him by name. There was another rich man that came to Jesus, but he couldn't do away with his possessions. And we only know him as the rich, young ruler. We don't know his name. His name's not written down. Think about that. But we know Zacchaeus because it was that, hum that, it was that humiliation. See, that's what separates the Christians. That's what makes us come to the Lord. That's what gives us salvation. What Jesus did on the cross, and we recognize it. I don't deserve that. It is what he did for me. Not because I'm better than anybody else. Finally, Matthew 21, 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But then he did not go. If you're a parent, you know you, you've experienced this. Which one of the two did the father, what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Even though he said no and he ended up doing it. The one who said, yes, I'll do it. But he didn't do it. He disobeyed. What happens when we say, God, yes, Lord, yes, we will do this. And nope. Maybe do the outward things to look nice and for people to. But if there's nothing happening in here, then we're in trouble. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe in. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So what's the key here, church? Repent. Transform. Let us recognize where we're at. Let us stand to our feet so we can close today. If we want to impact this community, if we want to be useful in the hands of God, there's some things we need to let go of. There's some things that are that are tripping us, that are holding us back. And I don't know what that is for you. It could be a relationship. It could be drugs. It could be, you know, love of money, your inability to forgive, your lack of faith. I mean, it could be, you name it. But I'm going to let the Holy Spirit deal with that. I, I, I'm not going to take the job of the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit is going to deal with your heart as he's doing with mine and as he's done with mine. And this is where the transformation needs to happen. Because the Holy Spirit, as we pray today, he's going to start pointing out things that we need to let go of. It's up to us, it's up to you and me to decide whether or not we're going to let go or not. It's up to you and me to decide what's more important in my life. Am I going to be like the rich young ruler and go into oblivion, into just a, as a side note, as a footnote in history? Or am I going to go down as Zacchaeus with a name? Church, we cannot impact the community if we don't start from here. We cannot change as a church if we don't start from here. Let us pray. Lord, Father, God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for every single person in this place. You, Father, know their heart. You know their needs. You know the difficulties and the battles that they're fighting. You know, Father God, what has chained them down, what has kept them from really being everything that you intended them to be in your hand. Lord, Father, start moving in this place. I pray that you start, the Holy Spirit, the light of your Holy Spirit starts lighting, illuminating, highlighting those things that we need to do away with. Those things that get between us and you, truly worshiping you. Because you are looking for worshipers that worship you in spirit and in truth. Father God, I thank you. I pray that you give me the strength, the courage to let go, to transform, to no longer be conformed to the world, but be metamorphed, to be transformed into the plan that you have for me, for my family, for my life. Pray for every single person, everybody that, every heartbreak heartbroken person here, anybody here who, who's struggling in any situation, anybody who's sick, anybody who's in financial trouble, anybody who's in marital despair, Father, I pray over this individuals that you bring your spirit and start letting down, breaking those chains, setting them free. You said that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon you to preach the good news to the captive, Father, to release the prisoners to give sight to the blind. Father, give us sight. Give us those eyes. Open our eyes to see what you have for us. In your holy name I pray.